0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Woman's Hour. Um, that might be the last time we say that. We are trying to find a new name. As usual, I have my trusty sidekick, Aisha. How's it going?
1: Hi. All good. Thank you. Enjoy how are you? Sunday.
0: Yeah. How are you feeling?
1: Really? Celebrating good.
0: this day where the, uh, the Lord knows again. Is it? Is it cold in Brighton? Yeah, it's sunny actually. Oh, okay. Um, So our guest this week, we have Joe Glenton. How are you doing?
2: Good, thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: It's all right. Where are you this week? What area are you allowed to stay?
2: I'm in in Republican East Greenwich, as you can tell by my Republican balaclava. I'm celebrating (laughs) the, uh, the Easter uprising with some friends who are from Derry, so.
0: Is that your, are you Irish then?
2: No, 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 they're just friends of mine, but I, I support that cause, obviously.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and we have Dr. Louise Raw. I'm saying doctor in case there's any little uh, fascists watching, because they do not like calling you doctor, do they?
3: No, apart from they do like calling me Dr. Bitch, which is oh. the title given to me by Tommy Robinson's team, which I actually am quite pleased with, because it makes me sound much cooler
0: than I am. Oh, kind of my rap angel. name, my rap name. It's like some Bond <laughs> villain, doctor, bitch. Yeah. I like that. I like that, Pretty Monica. Good. Where are you today? What area are you in today?
3: I'm in the southeast. Not going to say too much because those same people do look for my address quite conscientiously and quite frequently. So, yeah,
0: southeast. That's what I'm They do the exact same too. We're loving your background, by the way. Thank
3: you very much. Yeah, Southall, 1979. Ah. Very key moment in the history of uh, totally uncontroversial policing.
0: <laughs> well, that's what we kind of got you guys on to talk about. Um, this episode, we're speaking about protest. I will explain, So, I'm changing hair every week, like we're trying to try different looks. I'm not sure about this one. I don't know how people deal with fringes. This one's really quite annoying. I don't Did know. It's cute like though. I've been watching Love & Hip Hop, so I've just discovered wigs and I'm just so into them. So this is what I'm on. So anyway, um, we are talking about protesting today. And uh, do you guys want to speak about sort of your backgrounds, Louise? Because you are a bit of an expert in protesting.
3: Doing it and studying it. Yeah, I'm, I suppose, kind of a, I'm a social historian, but I do do a lot of stuff around protest. I'm sort of a protest historian, really. And I've been doing protests for a long time, too, since I was a, a youngster back in the Victorian era. So. Through that and through the trade union movement, really, I started to look at this kind of history and yeah it's it's difficult when you're a history bore it's always difficult not to start every sentence this reminds me of November 1887 in in London but at the moment it's really difficult not to because all the things are repeating all the things that we're seeing with protests and all the things that people then say after them as well oh yes it was the it was those demonstrators that started it definitely and
0: yeah but no that's actually what we want from you because we did an episode following the uh, Sewer Report, which we, our episode was called the Sewer Report. I saw about, that, um, bit of know, a typo there. Right. <laughs> I know, such an accident, but like I had, to, we had a, a sociologist then, and I said, with the way that the country is at the moment with this much unrest, this much unhappiness, I was saying, is there a time that you, um, it reminds you of, you know, that we can kind of relate to because, I don't know if you saw the documentary, um, the Black Power documentary um, that was on BBC Two last week, but Lyndon quezzy Johnson said you need to go back in time and look at what we did and learn from what we did and learn what, what went right and what went wrong and stuff. Mm-hmm. So therefore, that's kind of what we wanna do. I think it's really mm-hmm. important because if you don't understand your history, then you're not gonna understand your future. I think it was Biggie or Tupac that said that. Joe. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> who are you so, I'm we got you on i was really interested aisha was telling me about army protests which i didn't even know were a thing we yeah. thought you guys got into uniform and did what you were told we never knew that was any such thing so
2: yeah i mean it's it's a, it's a strange um it's a strange thing I'm, i've got I'm, I'm basically in the middle of referencing a book on exactly this on veterans who are on the left of politics and veterans who resist um and there's i think there's a general conception that everyone in the military does what they're told and in fact, it's just not true. There's a long history of resistance um, in the military, um, kind of attempts at trade unionism, um, different forms of disobedience and dissent have always been a feature of uh, militaries. And there's, I suppose there's a couple of ways we could look at it, but um, I mean, I can't speak to the, to the old bill, obviously, but I suppose it's, it's protest as an insider, as someone who's inside the security state um, in its various forms. I and mean, now the police are very different from the from the army, obviously there are no like homeless coppers charities they and they have a different relationship to capitalism and the state and so on. But um, I think there, there probably is something to be said about um, the potential for resistance inside the military. And there's, there's a really long and very interesting history of this, which is kind of written out because most people on the right want to believe that everyone in the military is on the right. And to be honest, some people on the left kind of want to believe that as well. Um, and it's actually not the case. And there's a whole, there's a really interesting um, background of, of people saying, no, actually, fuck off, Sergeant, fuck off, yeah. Lieutenant. Fuck off Colonel. Um, I don't
0: know if it's that we want to believe it, but I just think it's just obviously for reasons, you know, the obvious reasons, the establishment don't want us to know of it. Yeah, so yeah, you've exactly. got the army background, we're speaking about the police, like I spoke a bit today on Twitter, which is always a mistake, about so I've got a prison service background, I was a prison officer and stuff, and I think. Like they don't want people to know that they're actually decent forward thinking people in these institutions who are actually saying hell no. And I was just saying today, like if you see all the police and stuff, people don't understand this is a certain section of the police and I'm not saying by any means, I'm not defending, right? But what I was trying to compare it to is in the prison service, we had a, a group of people and they're from all different prisons and they're called the tornado group right and they will go so when you saw like years ago strange Way showing my age or any kind of prison uprising these are the people that gather and they put on all the you know they get suited and booted and they put this stuff on and they're like who 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 these are like what we saw with these kind of and i'm trying to say there's an element in that that Instead of going, oh my god, these poor police, they're our friends and our neighbours, and we, you know, we all know. These guys, don't pretend they don't want it. Do you understand? Because I wasn't going near tornado, I was having nothing to do with it. So it's like, don't pretend that these guys are not coming out looking for a fight, you know, because there is that element. Very much of what we've heard about the TSG part of the police force,
1: that they are, um, they are chosen for that, they choose the role, they are literally picked for aggressiveness, and I actually heard um, lack of intellect and um, desire to follow orders and be aggressive.
0: Yeah, and they said that in the Black Power documentary, yeah. they were speaking about police having no O-levels and stuff like that, I said so these were teddy boys and NF that literally got in their uniform to just essentially go wild on black people. Louise, eh? Hey? Yeah, the same
3: Louise. with... The same with the SPG, who, of course, killed Blair Peach in 1979. I was saying that on Twitter as well. Today, I was remembering a couple of years ago on the 40th anniversary meeting two of his female friends who were there with him, who were attacked with him, Joe and Amanda. And they were saying exactly what you're saying, that... The SPG came out like berserkers. They were probably drugged up actually, it subsequently turns out. They were so hyped up. They were so excited. I mean, Blair Peach was going home. He's a teacher. He was going home after the demo. He wasn't looking for trouble, but they were 100% and you can't get in their way and you can't stop them and that's what's interesting isn't it about the demos we've seen recently is that I know you've noticed it um, Ava that people have rushed on Twitter there's sort of supposedly people of the left to say oh well it's those protesters it's all definitely definitely 100% their fault even though I haven't seen the receipts yet it's definitely their fault and then we realize it isn't and they delete but it's not until a journalist, you know, a proper person, the sort of person I might have to a dinner party. That's a real person. Good grief. The police were a bit rough with them. Then they realised, don't they, that even though they're a white person with nice shoes and nice clothes on, those police are not going to stop if they're coming at you. If you say, excuse me, officer, I'm not that sort of chap. And they really don't realise that most of the time. They think they would get an exemption. They would not get battered.
1: But even actually, there was also, it wasn't just that, was it? It was um, Patsy, what's the name? Like, it didn't need to be a journalist. It just had to be a white woman. Yeah. And actually, that yeah. was one of the most terrific things, and we talk about it a lot. But, you know, that was one of the most terrific things for us because actually, that was at the beginning of it. But actually, they didn't stop, did they? Because that was weeks ago, and every bit of footage that I've seen about protests has shown the police reaching a point in the night or the afternoon in Manchester where they just... I mean, the way that they walked down the road in Manchester, those people that were sitting in the middle of the road, they looked like a gang. They, you know, they looked like someone had done an, you know, Alex Ferguson hairdryer treatment on them. They had a hype man in the bloody changing rooms, you know, like, come on. go. They they just didn't walk down like people who were about to engage in sort of conscientious policing. It
0: was like a gang that were hyped up and wanted to be violent. And that's something that's been really visible, I feel
1: like. Well, they
0: do. For years, the Metropolitan Police have had, like being bullying, like young black boys and stuff. And one of the things they say is we are the biggest gang in London. Mm-hmm. So to, to, to uh, you know, pretend that these are innocent people, it's, it's just, you know, they're the attack dogs for the establishment, that's what they are. And, you know, in the same way that you'll see these sort of shaven heads, EGL types and stuff, they're the attack dogs for the conservatives they're not going to get their hands dirty, they are going to put these people out, and it's kind of like, I think if we spoke a bit on this show at some point, all our shows end up interlinking, I want to bring Joe in in a minute, like, it's from when they're young, do you know what I mean, like, if you look at the roles, like, so I used to go into Hackney schools and speak to them about stop and search, one time I went in, I was so shocked that the army was. Would- and they were recruiting these kids from young and stuff. And, but then when I was at boarding school, it was uh, Sandhurst, is the... Sandhurst, yes, your
1: called, right? training, right?
0: Sandhurst is the... Even from them, from back then, um, when people are children, they are dividing them into sort of the establishment and the attack dogs. And the cannon fodder. from boarding school who are not going... They don't go in the army to crawl on their hands and knees and... Uh, you know, what I mean, I, IEDs, IEDs are coil way, but whichever one it is. But they don't have rich children on their hands and knees, crawling forward, looking for these devices. Because the army, we think of it as being so rigid. I mean, most of us only know about it from films or kind of books or literature or, you know, so how can you, how can protest manifest itself in the army? What, how does it work? In, a, in
2: <clears throat> excuse me, in any number of ways. I mean, the, the history of the British Army um, is is really closely connected with different kinds of political rad, radicalism. So if you go all the way back to the New Model Army and Cromwell, whatever you think of him, bit of a bit of a fucking dick in my opinion. And um, when you look at the New Model Army, it was centrally involved in kind of putting the consti- the the basis of a democratic constitution forward. And I mean by that the rank and file, the people at the bottom, were like, we fought a war, we want a better settlement. Um, and we should have more democracy and it was very limited it was like more votes for men over 21 I mean it was very limited then you follow that through and you look at rebellions in the first world war and mutinies in fact you can go earlier and look at um, massive protests there, there were veterans at Peterloo for example who were killed uh, in the big protests up there against the various authoritarian laws of the time and you could look at the the, the settlement after the second world all of those things involved serving soldiers airmen sailors and airwomen servicemen men and service women, um, and and veterans. Uh, there is this there is this long and quite rich history. I mean, generally speaking, if you're looking at like how people protest in the military, probably the most extreme example is a mutiny when you just stop marching. You say we're not doing it this anymore, um, and uh, and there are many many examples of that. But there are other ways as well. Sometimes, and I think increasingly it's the case that, like in my case, it's individual. But maybe a better case a couple of years ago, I think last year there was a young. Um, Anglo-Yemeni Lance Corporal in the army um, who uh, refused to soldier and uh, protested in Downing Street, named uh, Ahmed Al-Batati. Um, and so, so there, there are kind of ways in which this resistance expresses from the ranks in a very big way, mass mutinies and strikes effectively. And then there are kind of individual examples like me or Albertati of people just saying, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And then like in my case, I got locked up. In other cases, people just get booted out. But it's always there in any authoritarian organization. Um, that's always gonna be there. And, um, and, and you, you can look back at, there's a rich history of this in the, in the British military from literally the 1600s um, onwards. But as, as you were saying, it's, it's kind of airbrushed out because it doesn't really fit. The idea is, the idea we have the military that it's hyper-disciplined, it's kind of a unified team which, in a weird way, is kind of the way the Tories like to think about Britain. We're a family. We're all on one side. There are no contradictions. We're all in this together. Exactly. No, that's exactly what it is. it's actually, when you look closer, and that's what I mean. That's what I'm trying to get out in my book. But it's particularly the job of historians, um, like Louise. You'll find that it's actually a case of um, massive kind of explosions and eruptions and conflicts. Men and women, people from different kind of origins, people of different classes. Um, and that's the real story. And that's absolutely true in the military, I would say. I wanna um, ask Louise
0: and then sort of come back to you, Joe, on that, like, I know you said it at the beginning, you said, this is what we want to get from you. Is, like, we're seeing sort of uprisings in so many different cities at the moment. Does this remind you of anything? Because I think for me, politically, where we are, where we are at the moment, I'm reminded of the winter of discontent like where everyone's just had it with absolutely everything. Um, In terms of protesting and policing, can you draw any parallels from what we're seeing today? Yeah, I
3: could probably draw far too many parallels, but certainly the 1970s is the living memory one where everything just kicked off all over the country, because what, what the establishment never quite learned is that yes, you can oppress people. And it's surprising how long you can oppress people for actually. People will take an awful lot, particularly when they can't afford to lose their jobs, particularly when they're already quite terrorized and gaslit, like I suppose the black community, the Asian community in particular, you know, ground down by the constant gaslighting and racism and oh just exhausted by the state. That looks like you've won. That looks like everybody's very compliant. And then you see the far right kicking off and it looks like they're the only ones that have got a voice. It looks like they are the popular voice, doesn't it? They're the ones out shouting in the street. They're the ones gobbing off about lockdown and QAnon and 5G and God knows whatever else they're on about but they're the minority the rest of us once we get to a certain point it goes and it's always done that you go back to the middle ages it's always done that no matter how serious the strictures against you are even in death penalty times people can only take so much there seems to be I'm wary of calling it some kind of natural sense of justice but there's something in us where if you go too far, we've got nothing to lose. We go from having too much to lose to do it, to you've pushed us so far now, our backs are up against the wall. What else can you do to us? And I imagine that's how the black community, the GRT community, the lesbian and gay and trans community must be feeling, what else can you do to us? Know, going to this church this this conversion therapy church i mean for goodness sake don't tell me he doesn't know of course he knows the message that we're all being given is we're not concerned about you we're not even talking to you wokies we're talking to the people behind you we're talking to the right we're that they're the people we care about so i would say the 70s but you can go back to the 1880s as well where it looks like a period, you know, glittering height of the Victorian Empire. We think everyone's very patriotic. You can't move for flags, right? It's a bit like a Labour Party broadcast or any politician. Twenty-seven flags, one up your ass, just in case. It was like that in the eighteen eighties, right? The jingoism, the flag waving was absolutely insane, and so was the protest. Because again, it gets to that point where some people are doing so bloody well, they forget that the dockers who are starving, unpacking the wealth of empire are gonna go, oh, I can't afford any of this stuff. And in 1887, massive unemployment, a march, a peaceful march goes into Trafalgar Square, men, women, children, it's like a family day out. was really common in those days on the left about issues in Ireland, home rule, but also unemployment. And there are bands playing, there are people singing, it's a jolly day, it's a friendly day. They are met by troops and police who attack them completely unprovoked. And a a young man called Alfred Linnell gets trampled to death by a police horse. They deliberately ride at the crowd. They're, They're against a wall. They've got nowhere to go, literally. He's trampled again and again. They leave him to bleed out on the pavement. There's a police ambulance. They won't put him in it. Protesters have to go in and get that guy out. He dies in hospital. His wife had died, he was a widower, his kids were in the workhouse so that he could work, he was trying to get them out. So those kids became orphans and the press portrayed that as rioting. And they portrayed, you can see in the London Illustrated News, drawings of a man supposed to be linal, looking like a total thug, you know, which means dark, looking very dark because there's always a little bit of racism thrown in, even with white people stubbornly with a baton attacking the police. He was not doing that. He was a clerk who was just watching. And that was the period when, again, they couldn't contain it. It just went. And in 1888, the match win went on strike that kicked off all over the country virtually a general strike on the docks the next year and it just it went all over the country it went to ireland it went to australia they get to a point and they always underestimate this establishment they think we're riding roughshod over you and they don't expect that we'll get to that point and enough's enough
0: i want to bring come back to that in a little bit about a compliant media because we're seeing that same nonsense going on today but aisha i thought you wanted to say something it was just actually when you brought
1: up Starmer and the um, conversion therapy church. It was a black church, right? And I thought yeah, that was such yeah. a good you thing. You're so clever. You know, you thought you were going to get away with that and cause division there. And it's every time they just can't help themselves. Either it was a massive PR fail on their part. They didn't realize or they knew exactly what they were doing. Neither of them comes off well, does it?
3: Exactly. And given that, given that Theresa May went to that church in 2017, that's a couple of years ago, the first thing you, if you Google Jesus House, that's the first thing you get is that she was dragged, rightly, for going to a homophobic church. Don't tell me no one in Keir Starmer's PR team can Google. I, I'm that's thinking
0: what yeah. people. That's what, like, you had to find the worst black church. You couldn't oh go to Mount Rainbow that's run by Reverend Jude McCauley. Yep. You could go to one of these black progressive church. You can go to Joelle Robinson Brown. You could even go to like Kate Harwood, anything like that. You went there full of black people to piss us off and make us look stupid. But what I always asked Joe was, um, one thing that we saw where um, in Egypt during the Arab Spring in um, Tahrir Square Um, protests, I think I said that right, sorry, I tried my best, Um, but we saw um, them saying the people and the army are one hand, right, and anytime something happens here, uh, like the 2011 riots where you had Caitlin Moran going, send in the army, and you had all these blue tick centrist people going, send in the army, what do you think it would take here for our army to go, no, actually, we're not going to do it?
2: I think it would take a lot more than than what we've seen, which isn't to say there would there would be dissent. I think it's it's a the Tahrir Square case is is uh, an example I use in um, in the book. Though it's important to understand Egypt has a has a conscript army, so they're forced to go. But it's exactly. interesting because um, there's there's a really good piece on this which I've quoted, and it talks about the Tahrir Square thing was a really good example of how armies aren't this big happy team, and it's an example of how. You have, like, the, the military in Egypt is very closely, and it is the establishment. It owns factories. It runs the place, wow. um, in a sense. And you have the generals who are kind of part of the capitalism, in effect, of, of the, the capitalism of the, of the nation. Then you have this kind of eternally flip-flopping middle class who we all know about and lament, same as here. And then underneath that, because it's a conscript army, you have people who are just drawn from various poor communities. And the problem, I think, in Tahrir Square was that there was a risk at time that the army would look at the protesters and go, I know that bloke, and that's my mum, and that's my sister, and go, actually, and that was the point where they got rid of Mubarak. as They decided that the army was too big to lose, in, in a sense. Um, but but those, those, I mean, it's hard, it's a different question in a professional military, where people, economic conscription is still a thing. Most people, the army targets the lower orders, that's how I got into the army, because I was poor and broke, and... And, it, and it's a job. But some of those tensions do still exist in our own army. Most of the people who died in Afghanistan were from the ranks. Some officers died as well, but generally speaking, the army is, is structured around class. I mean, it's still the case. Um, where, at what stage we get to the point where a professional army will, will split, that's a different question to a conscript army. You know, But the bigger, I mean, Vietnam is another example where the army said, no, we're not fucking doing it anymore. We'd rather sit here and smoke weeds and you can go and fight the, the Viet Cong, which was, I mean, resistance and strikes and killing their own officers was a big thing in Vietnam. It helped bring the war to a grind halt. But professional armies, and this is the big question for someone who's, who's radical and ex-military, is how do you get professional armies to do that? Um, but beyond that, what well, I think what's come out, and I, I know Louise was talking about, basically the culture war of the 1880s, and it's interesting to me, yesterday I was on the protest and I ended up, I went to the wrong end like an idiot. I thought it was Trafalgar Square. And I walked back down from Trafalgar to Parliament Square and around the Cenotaph was a ring of steel, two police horses, loads of cops. And that was like 160 meters. I went back and figured out how far away it was from the protest. No one was interested in the Cenotaph. No one was even looking at it. I noticed that yesterday's demo was very much a kind of crusty demo. People were smoking weed. People were had their sound systems. Um, no one was even looking at the cenotaph. But the imagery, I think, is what's formed. We saw it on some earlier protests after the Clapham vigil, which I was at as well, just before it kicked off. Um, the, the idea of the police crowding around, pr- protecting our national history, et cetera, et cetera, is really powerful, even when the real narrative is that no one gives a shit about the cenotaph. No one was near it. But The idea that it has to be protected from who, unless a load of crusties can teleport from Parliament Square to halfway up Whitehall in an instant, I mean, I don't know. It's the same with the Churchill statue. I'm like, yeah. what are you guys doing? Yeah, and, but- and the, the nearest threat to that was like a couple of like white people, you know, dreadlocks, white guys dancing around it looking stoned. Like, no one was interested, no one's interested in the Churchill statue. And then halfway through the protest, they faced the cops. Bobby on the beat with riot cops. Like no one was even paying any attention. But I think it's the I think it's the imagery, and we saw that with a previous protest in Whitehall. It's the idea that these people are outside. They're not part of our society. The people fighting for justice in its various forms and kind of othered, I suppose it is the term you would use. And that's been repeated, I think, throughout these this series of protests.
0: Absolutely. And I kind of sort of what Louise said, like, isn't it interesting when they attacked Iraq, their thing was. What is all this hard on for imagery and optics like the big image from iraq was that statue of saddam hussein falling down but then they're around this churchill statue like what are you guys doing but i do agree with you um i'm gonna bring aisha in in a minute about the division because you just sort of reminded me of something Um, Where you're talking about egypt saying hey i know that guy over there because they don't do it anymore because they don't want to pay out the money but in the prison service what they used to do was cross recruiting so we would have a lot of officers in like the London jails who are from up north and then they would send up people from London up north so that you can't go, hey, I went to school with that guy. That guy's all right. That's my, f- it's all about division, isn't it? So Aisha. I was just going to say, what is it about statues? Isn't it the same thing about skyscrapers? They're all phallic.
1: you are going to cut down his dick, cut off his dick, protect my dick. I mean, fucking hell.
0: <laughs> you know, oh, like, it's I don't think
1: that basic because we are talking weirdo, about
0: men. No, really, is because yeah. someone said on Twitter like they had the whole um, Winston Churchill statue. and Someone's like, "It's not going to shag you. Like, get over it. <laughs> just get away from the fucking statue, you weirdos."
2: It is the flag crazy. might if you're really lucky. Louise, <laughs> <laughs> <really, laughs> there's a his. Oh, go on, Joe. Sorry. I was just going to say, um, I, I I realized that you the really iconic vandalization of Winston Churchill statue when he has a someone cut some turf. I made it a green home yeah. and that guy was an ex Royal Marine, which really, like to me, <laughs> really interested. Who was yeah. doing it as a free speech process? Into the guy got a month in prison in two thousand. So the, this weird conflation of the military and the culture war is really strange to me because, like, literally, the guy who trolled Churchill the most was an ex soldier. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: God, Louise, have you got um, any examples of the? military uprising here or what do you think it would take? If you could, what What do you think we need to get to for the army not to be something that we're threatened with here, where they might be too scared to call the army in?
3: Well, yeah, Joe's probably the expert on that more than I am. But I think at the moment, what's surprising is they seem to have On the whole the army and the police on side and I think I thought because we know the establishment has always used the police as their private army you know private boot boys of the establishment but when Theresa May started fucking off the police I think we sort of thought oh this is interesting because they don't usually do that they normally pat the police on the head just enough don't they to keep them on side we thought we're going to see some change here the police and she's offending the police she was really offensive to them wasn't she at a police conference when she was running through the cornfields or something but i thought that would really bring a change but it hasn't it doesn't seem to have done and i think it's because well prissy's their girl isn't she really and she's saying to them lads you can do what you want and that's what they've wanted to hear isn't it not everyone but some people in the police who would look back to the 70s where people like this gentleman behind me, you know, skulls just got cracked left and right, didn't they? The racism in the police force was astonishing. Not that it ever hasn't been, but it was more blatant. It was fully, fully blatant in the 1970s, wasn't it? And I think we have to accept that for some people, those were kind of glory days. And they're like, yeah, you know, like we see the far right thinking they're in heaven because we're getting back to the good old days where you can say the N-words. Is that your ambition in life? Is that all you've ever wanted from your life is to be able to insult people again in a more open way? My God, what limited limited dreams you have. But I think for some in the police, yeah, they're really feeling their oats again, aren't they? They're feeling really backed up. Patel has just said, Go out on crackheads, lads.
0: Yeah, I I phrased the question wrong actually. It was kind of like the police I meant to ask you about, but you know, it's Easter and vodka. But um, (laughs) (laughs) no, what I wanted, like we had um, Tasneem uh, Kunji on, who is a a lawyer um, of the- And Halal Hartford, lest we forget. Yes,
3: I know him. I've heard, I've, I've, uh, I've, met him. Yes, he's great. And I saw his door opening cat as well on the episode. is <laughs> yes. really
0: impressive as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've had him on a couple of times. We're going to have him on again. Yeah, a halal heartthrob. But one of the points that he made, which I found interesting, wanted to ask you about was um, what Margaret Thatcher did when she was going after the miners was she boosted the police, but with numbers and stuff. At the moment, if you've ever tried to report anything to the police, you can't, like, you're speaking, there's only two on, there are no police. So I think pretty much everything, everybody is out on the streets right now. I mean, I think if people had sense, they'd all protest at once in every single city, because as they were doing in Bristol, they were sending other police forces in. If everybody's out in every area, they are really, really sort of, you know, lacking in numbers at the moment. So do you think, like, not wanting to give her any ideas, can the police sustain this, though? Because they don't have the numbers to to sustain it, really, do they? Mm.
3: I think it's really difficult to have slashed them to the bone the way that they have to have cut their pay as well, the way that they have. You know, we all know some people that are outside London, you've got about six local cops for three towns and villages, and if they're all dealing with a fight down the and whatever, then you can do whatever you want in the rest of the area because there's literally no police. So it's going to be interesting. I don't think that they can keep this up. I really don't. And that's the difference between the 70s. And yeah, Thatcher ideologically brought in the police to break the people to break the unions, which of course she hated, started with the most powerful union. It had nothing to do with mines or mining whatsoever. It was a, an all out offensive on, on she, you know, if she could have called them the woke, if that term had been around, then I'm sure she would have done. But it's going to be interesting to see whether a completely depleted police force can keep up this level of, and it's not sort of relaxing sitting behind a desk policing, is it? It's exhausting out on the streets. I, I imagine battering people is quite tiring. I suspect your baton hand gets a bit, you might get a bit of RSI. It's pretty intensive. So how long can they keep it up? We see what they used to do in the 1880s, they had a tremendous idea and it worked really well. They would sign up special constables. So when they were planning to batter people a bit, like in 1887, when they were planning to to batter the unemployed. And again, in in 1889 when they were planning to attack the dock strike processions, which were huge, you'd have hundreds and thousands of people, they'd sign up any Tom Dick or sort of Tommy Robinson, you know, who wanted to come along they give him a few quid they give him a baton can you imagine how much these lads loved it loved it they had a little armband they could swing their baton but we can't but it was there was a one guy who talked about that and the dock strike and he looked back on it when he was older and said god I was an idiot but he looked back and said I have been made to think that I've been given this little bit of power I was superior these dockers these unemployed people were just the great unwashed. They weren't real. They weren't real to me. And I felt so excited. Now, like what we were saying about the police being hyped up. I was so excited. I couldn't wait to crack a few heads. I couldn't wait to swing my little cotch at people. But we haven't got that now. That's what we've done in the past. when well, we've had civil unrest, but we can't do that now. Unless, oh, I don't want Pretty Patel to hear this. She's gonna start doing it, isn't she? We're gonna get Britain first, signing up. Paul oh, Golding is going to come down and get stuck in a revolving door.
0: Oh. I have a lack of sympathy for that, to be honest. That, you know, that guy going, oh, I was so excited and stuff. I think it's the measure of you. When you put, you You know, they say you can tell what someone is when you put them in uniform. Mm. I had no desire to beat up any inmates. Had no desire to be bullying anybody or preventing them from it. I just didn't have the energy for that kind of thing. So I think you, you definitely, I mean, if you look at the Stanford experiment where mm. they divided these and just put some in uniform So, like you people you were always crazy the uniform just brought the crazy out yeah I look at Joe for instance who was in the army and look at his politics and stuff now we can't turn about you know I mean I think they yeah go Louise sorry yeah sorry I was just gonna say I've seen exactly
3: exactly that same kind of excitement you can almost smell it from the far right when they're outnumbering us as anti-fascists and there aren't any police around, I've had a few occasions of that, it's exactly the same excitement, you know, it's almost sexual, it's really bizarre. It's not normal and fortunately most people don't feel like that, but that excitement that you see in elements of the police, it's exactly the same thing, yeah, it's, it's very bizarre.
0: It's weird. Aisha? Sure? I was just going to say, it's,
1: I find it really interesting that every time you see a clip, of police officers talking to protesters or black people their tone of voice is universally the same and it's similar to the fascists that you talk about they always have this slightly smug you know calling them lads calling this the and they all sound exactly the same and i think there's you know i'm sure a sociologist could have a field day with it but there is a exactly like ava said there's somebody who's chosen to do that role and there's something they're getting out of it and i think that's something that you can't really ignore and when you said about the the um people they hired in i'm just like yeah but that's just the police. You're just describing the police force to me. Like those people have chosen it. You're paying them to do it. You're just describing them, and it and it feels odd to even think that there's a difference,
0: really. I was going to ask Joe, literally, um, at what point, like, do most people become disillusioned with the army? I mean, when, you, like, when I was working in prison service, the amount of, I mean, it's all free for all now. It's peeing, getting vodka, bringing kids. <laughs> have you sent him with the glass to refill your? I was muted. No one had to say anything. You could have just ignored him. He's gone to get me a top up. (laughs) I saw that. Um, (laughs) Like, how do people keep their spirits up anyway in the Army? Because, like, do they think about what happens afterwards? Because when I was in the prison service, we had a lot of ex-Army guys in as inmates. inmates. And the homelessness as well for ex-Army people is off the scale. And there's just no aftercare and isn't it sort of like a whole juxtaposition where it's like our boys our boys our boys and then they come back you're like pissed you know what I mean
2: yeah no it's weird I I generally think morale lasts about fucking 25 minutes to be honest like once once you're in once you've got past the glossy magazines and the recruiters spiel and things change some people love it and those people are deeply strange (laughs) most people most people once you're in you start to realize and a lot of the kind of ideological stuff falls away. Um, but what, ca- and, and this is this is a problem, and we see it in the States. I know it's in the Capitol Hill attack, like 20% of the people being prosecuted over the Capitol Hill attack in America are veterans. And yeah. we see something similar here. You can come out and the, the experience of war and what goes with the military, institutional racism, um, sexism, deep misogyny, all the problems in the military, it can spin you a number of different ways. Some people come out and they go all the way left and they become radicals. And those are kind of my people who I'm trying to engage with and and write about at the moment. Other people, and it's very often the case, develop these, these toxic stab in the back theories where the people who've betrayed them are gay people, trans people, black people, effete liberal politicians, so on. And they go all the way the other way. And it's very often the case. And I know that um, I it, it's interesting to me because I, I know people who've who are veterans who've been in prison but also who've been prison guards who who are veterans and I also noticed that the TSG for example attracts a lot of veterans. I noticed that the um the firearms section including the, the man who's currently charged with the murder of Sever- Sarah Everard veteran um so it can go completely the other way without wanting to libel anyone <laughs> um and a lot of people come out and they become deeply embittered and they kind of internalise the the idea of the hard done by Tommy Atkins hero. Um, And when you look historically, it's really you look in Italy, Mussolini veteran, Hitler uh, veteran, all the fascist movements of Europe of the thirties involved centrally, ex-military people. And it's all about this stab in the back theory. And there is a degree of that today. And I suppose as a (laughs) non-historian, there are historians who could speak to these forces more clearly than me but there is a long history of veterans being driven into the arms of the far right because the far right will go now you are a hero now you have been betrayed you absolutely have been betrayed come with us we've got all the flags you can shag join us <laughs> that, that said there's another narrative which is that you know veterans also shoot their officers and rip their officers insignia off and go back and they join they join the far left. Um, so this, there's this idea of kind of a civil war between, between different sections of people who've been trained to fight. Um, yeah. And there's many, many a good radical and revolutionary in the history of this country who learned how to shoot straight in the army and became a part of progressive movements as well. But it's, um, it's a massive collision of forces.
0: Yeah. I think that we do have that example. Like, I don't go on demos anymore, but I used to go on demos like back in the day 2011 when I was living in Walthamstow with the EDL marching through. I'm sure that's where we first crossed paths uh, Louise and sort of heard of each other and stuff and saw each other on those types of things. But there definitely is something in what you're saying. And I think it does go down back to the Stanford experiment and that is just your personality type. Like there's some people who can be drawn into that and some people who can't because I know a lot of the guys who were in the UAF who were on those demonstrations were ex-football hooligans. And um, they will say, I know that guy from back in the football matches and the other guys, you know, the far right, they were some ex-football hooligans as well. And when I was looking at the police yesterday, I thought, God, you're football hooligans. That's exactly what, do you know what I mean? I think it is, Louise, you were going to jump in and say something as well.
3: Yeah, it's that kind of machismo, isn't it? It's that wanting to be the top boy and all the aggro that goes with it. But yeah, I was going to talk about some of my favourite anti-fascists. It just reminded me what Joe was saying, who were the 43 group who came back from World War II and their parents had to tell them, oh, great to see you, son. You know, lots of hugs and kisses and it's wonderful that you're back. And then I remember one of them saying... I knew there was something wrong because I could see this sort of shadow in my dad's eyes and he had to tell me the fascists were back. And I couldn't believe it. Mosley is marching again. Like we kind of thought World War Two had sort of settled that whole fascism, is it good or bad thing? But here they are again on our streets. So they just went out and sorted them and they could fight. And they, they always said, you know, we don't walk at the fascists. We run at them. And more respect when he was such a gentleman, and he'd apparently say, "Well, it's very unfortunate, but unfortunately, yes, this is what we have to do. We do have to just absolutely smash the bastards, you know, <laughs> and just get rid of them." And uh, yeah, so exactly that. People who'd been in the military knew how to fight, and the guy who founded the Home Guard actually, um, Tom Winterham, was a Spanish Civil War veteran and actually turned the home guard from what we think of on dad's army to this really elite guerrilla fighting force. At which point, of course, the establishment came and took it off him and kicked him out and wrote him out of history because he was a commie. But yeah, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? What the veterans will do, where they go.
0: What I want to ask is, um, how do we go forward in the digital age? Because it's okay with um, Linton Cressey Johnson saying, you've got to look at what we did and go, well, they didn't yeah. have smartphones then. They didn't have facial recognition then. They didn't have like, you know, ways to identify you from your freaking earlobe like how can we do this and be successful in the modern age
3: Hmm. yeah it's going to be incredibly difficult because we're really up against it but then every age of sort of street fighters has been has had its problems has had its things it's got to overcome and I suppose we're just going to have to work around it I do think there's an awful lot that you can learn from black protest movements I think he's right about that I learned a lot although I'd been you know a sort of lefty lefty for hire you know all-round firebrand and troublemaker since i was young it wasn't till my friend roger sylvester was killed by the met police oh sorry in close proximity i think i have to say for legal reasons to the metropolitan police and i joined his family campaign that i consider my real education in how to be an activist began from people who just had to do this thing all the bloody time who would just go in tottenham okay Another person dead, another march to the police station, here's how we do it. We have to absolutely all be united. We have to make sure we haven't got white protesters over here, black protesters over here. We've all got to be in it together and learn from each other. How we get around the new tactics, how we get around this bill, if this bill gets in, which let's face it, they've got a majority, they've got a fuck majority, haven't they? It's gonna pass. And it's horrendous, isn't it? It's horrendous, we're gonna have, we've already got a a replacement of that unit that they have with the undercover cop Mark Kennedy, the civil disorder unit or whatever it was. We've just discovered they've actually reintroduced that and they're already, already spying on demonstrators. They're going to give spy cops more powers to break the law, like they weren't doing that anyway. And if this bill passes, this bloody 307 page nightmare of a draconian bill, and you can, as one person, one person with a placard, if you piss off a police officer, you can go down for it and get a massive fine.
0: Exactly. Likely it's to cause an audience. I didn't know you knew the Sylvester family. That really, mm-hmm. really, I do not know them. I met the mum and dad um, when I used to go on demonstrations like um, with Marcia Rigg when she used to hold all these things. And I remember seeing them and they had the photo of him. And when I wrote that book, Pour on Water, it was about police killings and stuff like that. It was actually something they had said to me. And I don't know why, I just felt like really upset, but I remember the mum saying like, we were gonna go back to Dominica, because, you can know, see I've got my Dominican flag back there. And uh, but we're gonna go back when we get justice for our son. And I remember just thinking, then you're not going back. You're not no. going back then. And they
3: didn't, they, they fought for seven years. And of course I don't need to tell you, it's exhausting you don't get to grieve you have to hit the ground running campaign and we used to meet in Roger's bedroom you know I mean god it was just heartbreaking his mum what she had to see what she told me on the day of his funeral about having to he'd been through numerous autopsies let's just say and she wanted to dress him in his suit and the personal pain the agony of that and trying to fight to get justice which would exhaust a person who wasn't grieving who wasn't, I, yeah, it. I think, um, and they went for seven years, didn't they? They got an unlawful killing verdict. The police appealed, the Met appealed, it was overturned. And in the end, they had to say, we can't, for the sake of our family, we can't do it anymore. We're going to have to step back and get on with that, and grieve Roger. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, well, I've, I've been there, so I understand. Yeah. Completely. yeah. I do think that um, at this moment, like I was speaking to Taz the other day and we were talking about, and he was going, okay, about, um, you know, if there's going to be an uprising or revolution, whatever. And we were talking about it in terms of race. I said, it is not going to be in terms of race. That's going to be the problem. There is no way now with the amount of black and brown Tories that we have, and with the amount of black and brown people who are just acting like they've lost their minds. Um, I think it's literally going to be a revolution of the heart and the mind and the conscience. Like, what do you think? Do you, are you a forward thinking person or are you not? because i mean who's causing most of the problems in this country right now is pretty Patel. Yeah. she's causing unrest and it's like every i know every show i say i don't want to talk about her but we have to it's she's her excited, fault she makes us do it try this stuff she's just like it's like she's getting off on this stuff it's absolutely yes it like what we we're talking about these testosterone filled males i don't know if it's cuz she's short and short people sorry sorry Louise but you know like they manifest their anger in different ways and Louise does hers with protesting Prissy Patel does hers by causing literal unrest and where are we going where is she going with this nonsense you know where is she actually going with it because it's like she's happy to be this face and that's why you can't say it's a long color line this is a brown woman Louise Yeah,
3: I am five foot two. I want to defend the honor. I think Ava said something on Twitter like, Why would you be five foot two? Why have you no ambition? Why would you give up? (laughs) My son thought that was the funniest thing. My five foot ten, 14 year old son who mocks me all the time. So thank you. I'm dreading those
0: days, days. (laughs) Louise.
3: My son is like
1: nearly nine, and I am dreading the days when I'm like, and another thing,
3: yeah. Where you where go I
1: with that? Now. You need to put the boot in now. Speaking of Pretty yes. Patel, you try need to the early doors
3: before they grow. Try to break him now because I have to stand yes. on the sofa sometimes. <laughs> to try I to. But I think we're in a position that the actually the suffragettes were in in 1910, and people think suffragettes posh white pankhurst, but there were Asian suffragettes, disabled suffragettes, lesbian suffragettes, um working class, lots and lots. of working class suffragettes and for them going to prison was a nightmare so before they ever got militant the government's bound them all over just for heckling for the mildest things and said we'll bind you over to keep the peace for a year which meant they thought everyone has to stop protesting now because they don't want to go to prison these are working class women with kids They cannot do it. There's no childcare. They can't go to prison. And there was a suffragette called Adelaide Knight who I love, working class East End suffragette with a black husband who was the most amazing. I think their couple goes, these two. He's not only drop dead gorgeous, Donald Adolphus Brown, but he took her surname when he married her in 1894. And she was faced with exactly that, exactly what we'll be faced with with this bill. She had to come home. She was a disabled woman and a mum of two young kids. And she had to come home and say to her husband, what can we do if I give in to this intimidation? That's it. That's the end of this movement. We're done. But am I well enough to go to prison? What are you going to do about the kids? You've got to work. And he said to her, my dearest mama, because when the kids were around, he was called a mama, we have faced every trial that has been put to us because there's a mixed race couple in London, you can imagine, and we will not fail now that we have really been put to the test. He supported her completely, Um, most amazing man. But she had to go to prison. A thousand, over a thousand suffragettes went to prison. And of course we know they were false fed, but then, And this is what we're looking at, I think, now, when that didn't work. Winston Churchill, yay, authorised the police to beat seven shades of shit out of the suffragettes to sexually assault them um, in 1913 on Black Friday. Their clothes were ripped. We saw that woman being stripped in Manchester. They ripped their clothes, exposed their breasts, attacked their breasts, threw them half naked to these groups of thuggish men, said, do what you want with them women were sexually assaulted and beaten you know two women died within days of the protest so we're not looking i am not been very as optimistic as I hope to be there really um <clears throat> so we're looking at really tough times but you they teach us I suppose as do so many other protest movements. you cannot give in to intimidation from the state or you're done you're just done.
0: Absolutely but I know it says like it sounds like you're being pessimistic but it's not, it's like we're saying you've got to look at the past, you've got to learn some lessons from it. Mm-hmm. And Joe, I wanted to ask you, what could people what could laymen do in order to support people in the army? And I know that sounds like a not a very left-wing position and stuff, but like you said, I mean they come out, they're imprisoned, they have mental health issues, people don't care about them. And we know that these are the people that they will try and turn on us. So what can we do to kind of Try and build some solidarity with these guys to make them understand like we know that you were recruited at school we know that you're you know you're shoved out there and prince harry has a bodyguard and you guys are the ones calling on the ground you know and you could be blown up at any minute what can we do to make sure that they under, you know to to consolidate the struggles basically
2: it's a, i mean it, it's a problem it's um the, the military and veterans i think for some of the left, some of the left are a blind spot if you're working class and on the left the military option looms very large. If you're not, it doesn't. So I think generally, kind of from a working class background, you understand the drivers. That like there's it's important to get away from a kind of essentialism that everyone who joins is evil. And most people join for money, just like I did, for opportunity. So it's important that I think that kind of a materialist look of why people join is, is the starting point. But the best way, really, if you want to involve those people, is through veterans. Like veterans have have a way in, and there is a kind of burgeoning veterans, the left, vet, group of left veterans, I wouldn't call it a movement quite yet, but there are a lot of us, and I think those people do have a lot to offer. Um, but uh, equally as important, a lot of the people that I know who are ex militia are just involved. Loads of the guys I know were on the BLM mm-hmm. protests. Loads of the guys I know, and women, are in renters' unions, are in trade unions, were involved in the Labour Party, we're involved in the radical versions of Scottish independence, are Irish Republicans. And so they're, they're already kind of there. But really, I think it's just we need to reinterpret um, the idea that everyone in the military is a fascist. If any were you'd fuck them off the same way. So if a veteran turns up and happens to be foreign, you treat them in the same way. But lots of people aren't. And lots of people are from working class backgrounds and share our material interests. Um, it's really about kind of reframing how we think about the military. It's not to say the military... The military is a hyper-conservative organization. Not everyone in it is. Uh, they're still people with potential, um, I suppose is my argument. And so we have to engage on that basis because there's a, a great grand historical tradition of soldiers, sailors, and airmen kicking off, um, overthrowing, overthrowing their commanders and causing all kinds of trouble for the British establishment. They don't just belong to them. It's, it's a, the military is a contested space I suppose is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, I think um, America are a bit ahead of us when it comes to that. Because in America, they will understand black and brown people had no choice but to be in the military. And there is that more sympathy. But I guess, you know, the different history and stuff allows them to sort of understand and notice that. Louise, I'm going to say before we go because we're not going to—we're we're trying to keep to an hour <laughs> at this point. So, um, Aisha, did you want to jump in and say? I thought you had your hand up to say something.
1: Um, I am not quite middle aged, but I have forgotten it. So let's just move on. <laughs> You're middle aged. Stop lying. <laughs> oh, stop, Joe. Joe is five whole months <laughs> younger than me, and he thinks he's a spring chicken. I've got less grey hair than you, Joe. That's all I'm saying.
0: <laughs> Louise. You've written a book, right, Louise? I have, yeah. So I've written you know, a book in, the, book. in the comments and stuff, but just tell people what your book was about and where they can get it.
3: So it's Striking a Light, available from all good bookshops, but do get it from places like Bookmarks,
0: um, up near the British uh,
3: Museum, but also online or Newman books. So lots of good independents, housemans, loads of good independent books right out there. Striking a Light, which is a hilarious pun because it's about match women. Do you see what I did there? Who went on strike in 1888. But that's about that whole thing, really about the fact that working class people started realising who was on whose side. And that's everything we've been talking about today, really, isn't it? What Abba said about a revolution of the heart, it's realizing who is really on your side, no matter what they tell you, no matter who's waving the flag. And the match women just kicked off, really, in the East End of 1888. They were supposed to be the most powerless, the most powerless, absolute scum of the earth, working class, you women, yuck, um, industrial working women in a factory, Irish, that practically black to the Victorians, which is obviously awful. Um, and yet they changed the world with their strike. They kind of began the modern trade union movement and Jeremy Corbyn acknowledged it as the start of the Labour Party, really. But when I came to that book, that wasn't the narrative. The narrative was absolutely not. These were working class, Irish, uneducated girls. They probably went on strike by mistake. I expect a middle-class person made them do it just about accept the dog strike because at least that was men. It's a shame it was working class people. So I, was, I, I saw kind of the importance to young girls, particularly of that story. And it's amazing going into schools because they were from migrant backgrounds, the women and Irish backgrounds, going into schools and telling that story to young Muslim girls, young black girls and seeing them kind of sitting up in their chairs a little bit straighter thinking, yes, young teenage girls who were completely written off as powerless, actually change the world
0: well we will um put a link to where to get your book in the comments afterwards so people please buy louise's book and it's what you said i mean we had jeremy corbyn for a little while we don't have an opposition so i think it's really important to uh, learn from these movements and basically empower yourselves because if you're waiting for keir starmer you're going to be waiting a long time uh ayesha before we go i just um, just uh tag on to what
1: louise said just Talking about the protests now, we have so many young people protesting. And the age of the protesters, they're so young. I saw a tweet yesterday. uh, The person who kicked off the speeches in Brighton was 15. I just thought, yes, because you know what? That is probably the most hopeful thing you'll ever hear me say on the show, because normally I'm literally the doomsayer. (laughs) and I have no hope in anyone or anything. But genuinely, that actually filled my heart with a little bit of joy. I thought, yes. You know what, if the kids are even, and they are better than us, they're so much better. One more question, sorry. Is anyone thinking of Northern Independence Party? Just while we're talking about things that aren't
0: Labour anymore. I, you know, just think it's funny. They're upsetting Labour, so it's funny. <laughs> That's it. I'm, quite whip close. It. I'm
3: quite The Whippet whip is really upsetting people. Yeah, the Whippet, <laughs> the Whippet is causing a lot of annoyance. I think the Whippet might be anti-Semitic.
2: <laughs> Wait, what was that Joe? You, I was going to say, I think, I think it's funny because they're, I know a couple of the guys are ex-military, are ex-army guys um, uh-huh. who are involved in it, who are Ge- Geordies and Scousers and so on, proper like working class people. Um, and they uh, I like the fact they've basically the whip it and all that stuff. They're basically, you know, the whole Labour like authenticratic, like we're the real North. Nobody drinks cappuccino in the fucking North. I like the way that NIP have taken that and just totally confounded Labour these kind of fake autocratic people are completely like, oh, you know, just, just dumbstruck by the fact that, because that whole thing is about taking the piss out of labor. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And they are funny, like centrists can never be funny. They just true. they have shit banter and <laughs> real people have good banter. And that, I don't know where it will go, but I like the, the disruptive element of the Northern Independence Party. And I think it probably says something about the dell of labor When I look at it, I'm like, not the Labour Party, not the Labour movement, the Labour Party, kind of, it's death throes with Corbynism. And now we have to look for something else. And it has to be bottom up, which I don't think Corbynism was, to the degree it could have been or should have been. Um, And I think NIP is like a, NIP is a sign of that. And it's, we can take it as something healthy as well as, uh, you know, a, a sign of decay in Labour.
0: Yeah, Definitely. Joe, wanna ask you before we go about, you've written one book already, you're working on the second one, just tell us where we can get your book, tell us what your second book's about.
2: Um, It's called Veteranhoods, Rage and Hope in Ex-Military Britain. Um, It will be all good bookshops and also Waterstones. Uh, (laughs) Uh We lapped for maximum um, trolling factor. We're looking to release it on on Remembrance Week (laughs) just to really, really annoy fascists in berets and blazers and medals. Um, uh, So yeah, yeah, I've basically got to go. I was supposed to be referencing this weekend, completely ignored it and got drunk instead. But uh, yeah, I should submit very soon. and It should be out in November. Excellent, excellent. And your original book, just send us the details.
0: We'll put it in our comments section so people know where to buy that. Guys, I'm gonna ask you to stay on. We are gonna say goodbye to our audience, but you guys need to stay on because we wanna do our 10 questions for our patrons which we will, uh, it's a a feature that we've just started. So um, to all our viewers, thank you very much for joining us again. On our next show, we will have Dr. Sean Sobers and Dr. Adam Elliot Cooper. And Adam Elliot Cooper has just got a book out um, about black people and policing uh, in this country. And Dr. Sean Sobers is from Bristol. And we're gonna be asking him, why does Bristol kick off first? (laughs) always 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 like we need to get some bristol spirit um all right then guys thank you very much and uh, if you have got a new I- uh, any ideas for a new name for this show please submit them we're running a competition where you have the chance to win nothing okay guys <laughs> we'll see you in the next show thank you bye say bye everyone bye, bye. bye.